The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop destroying your Microsoft Word disk and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 472 with guest Steve Evans, recorded live Tuesday, July 21st, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who wants to talk to Microsoft about his patent on the words super excited, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin with you here. Richard will be here in a minute. Hey, we're down in Nashville this weekend at DevLink, uh, devlink.net. If you want to take a look and see what's going on down there, we're recording a panel discussion the topic of which is, has software development gotten too complex? And good old Reverend Billy's going to be on the panel as well as a couple other people from down there. And uh, that's going to be quite fun. Watch out for that one when it comes around. Hey, let's get into Better Know a Framework. Better Know a Framework, of course, is this uh, little section I do on the show where I shine a little light on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET framework and in hopes that over time, through osmosis, you'll hear enough of this stuff so that you'll actually be a little smarter, maybe. Today I'm talking about the system.windows.annotations namespace, where the class is to support user-created annotations on content displayed in WPF document viewing controls. So you know what I'm talking about, sticky notes or, you know, in the case of uh, the tablet PC, little ink notes. Basically the ability to take anything that can store a document, and that's, some you know, the flow document reader, the flow document scroll viewer, the document viewer base controls such as document viewer and flow document page viewer. These can all have annotations on them. You can just uh, make them up with classes that are in the system.windows.annotations namespace. Know it, learn it, love it. 
We do have an email today. I'm going to read this one from David Morton called, Oh No, System.Threading.Timer Can Be Stopped. Hi, so I was listening to the show the other day, and I heard you read an erroneous email from a listener in Zimbabwe. While you definitely did leave out System.Threading.Timer, he also left out the fact that System.Threading.Timer can be stopped. He said it couldn't be stopped. Simply call the change method and set the two values to timeout.infinite. Timer1.change, in parentheses, timeout.infinite, comma, timeout.infinite. And uh, the callback will never be called again. Love the show. David Morton in Houston, C-Sharp MVP. David, thank you very much just for pointing out that... uh, how to, we're going to send you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you've got comments, suggestions, flames, anything that you want to tell us, send it to .NET Rocks at franklins.net. We read all our email. Sometimes we read them on the air. And uh, our friends at Infusion are still furiously sucking up .NET Rocks listeners as incredible employees. So not only if you, if you want to go work for Infusion in New York or Toronto or London or Dubai, you are going to be in good company. You'll know that the people you're working with all listen to this show. So, and not only that, but they're a really good bunch of people. They're headquartered in New York City. Great creative bunch. They're into, he, uh, Greg gets them all into, uh, improvisational theater. It's like a requirement. Anyway, for the New York uh, guys anyway. So if you're interested in a position with them, send me an email, carl at franklins.net, and I'll be happy to hook you up. Our guest today is uh, Steve Evans. Steve is the founder of Cirque, which you can find at CirqueTools, S-E-R-K-Tools.com, an IT infrastructure consulting company. With 10 years of enterprise IT experience, he helps companies both large and small streamline their IT operations. Steve also has a background as a developer. He bridges the world between developers and IT pros and frequently speaks at code camps and user groups. He teaches developers all they need to know about the operating systems, directories, and servers. Oh, my. I did not write this bio. (laughs) I take no responsibility for that joke. When not doing something related to work, he has a wife that is a full-time student, two young daughters, a house addition they are building themselves, and a plethora of pets. All the information you need to interact with Steve online can be found at CircTools.com. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. You know, written jokes are really hard. So they are, aren't they? You shouldn't be so hard. Comedy I mean, is, is difficult stuff. <laughs> well, in the written form, at least. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. So everything a developer needs to know to survive the world of IT. Well, not everything, but enough, hopefully. Enough to get them through the first week? <laughs> First week's usually, it's pretty hard to break everything within the first week. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that moment year. where you, you try and do something. But uh, I've certainly run across companies where the, the IT guy is actually a developer who was the guy who was standing closest to the server when the last guy quit. Yeah. Paul <laughs> Randall calls that the involuntary DBA. And I, 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 yes. I, I've expanded that to be the involuntary IT pro, especially in smaller dev shops. Yeah, you made the mistake of showing competence in configuring something, and now that's your job. Right, right. You see that a lot in smaller dev shops where they might have five sure. or six web programmers, and they think, well, we can just, you know, we'll just take one of these guys and make him manage the web servers, which works to a, you know, to a certain extent, but, you know, developers and IT pros are two different animals just because 
we both work with computers doesn't mean we understand each other very well. We know we have cursory knowledge. I mean, we have to know something about computers to be developers in the first place. We have to at least know enough about computers to do our own maintenance and install our own operating systems and things. I think maybe some of the most difficult stuff that I've had to deal with as a non-IT guy is stuff like dealing with networks and firewalls and forwarding ports, especially when you get into VPNs and virtual machines and what what networks they have available to them. That's that's where I think it gets hairy for a lot of developers. Yeah. I do a I do a talk at Code Camps and user groups called Networking for Developers. And uh it's it's a very popular talk. I bet. And you know it's just one hour on, you know, how does name DNS name resolution work and how does uh, you know, things like firewalls and ports, and uh, I show them how to do packet traces. And just in that hour, I mean, the the amount amount of knowledge you can learn in an hour of networking it takes you f- so far as a developer. Yeah. Because everything a developer does now relies on the, on the network in some way. Right. It's a pretty small scope of programs that don't use the network these days. Yeah, it's not just if the power's out, your computer's useless. It's if the internet connection's out, your computer's useless. Yeah, I was in a situation with no network connection a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, this thing's, this thing's a $2,500. Yeah, paperweight. You know, all I can do is run the calculator and play a pinball. Not much to do. <laughs> Solitaire. Yeah, tweet, de- tweet deck's not updating, so what am I supposed to do yeah. with this thing? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I have a friend um that talks a lot about how he you know, he, he's kind of in between the dev and IT and he feels like, you know, knowing IT makes him a better developer and being a developer makes him a better IT pro. And I think that's true. Um it goes both ways in that regards. Well, I certainly agree. It's that's the way I live. But yeah. uh, suppose you are the developer who's standing closest to the server uh, when the last guy quit. Uh, what is the change in mindset? What do you need to know? Well, I think the biggest thing an IT pro, uh, you know, someone who's filling the role of an IT pro needs to realize that, that the number one task of an IT pro is information assurance. And so that means, you know, you, an IT pro is responsible for being given data, storing that data, and returning back that same data. Um, you know, to the authorized people. And really, everything everything rests on that core principle. Uh, you know, once you can reliably return the data you were given, um, you know, accurately return the data you were given, then you can start worrying about, can I return it quickly? Can I return it, you know, a majority of the time? Can I manage a lot of data? You know, if you can't even return... You know, if you can't even store the data and return it correctly, you know, all that other stuff just doesn't matter um, until you've gotten that one down. Right. I mean, so the number one rule of IT pros is information assurance, at least in my mind. I can't argue with that. And it's a good way to think about it. That that's number one. It's certainly not the number one thing on a developer's mind. Oh, no. Right. I mean, a developer, the developer has the luxury if they mess up the data, they can fix it. You know, it might be painful to fix, but they can fix it. But as an IT pro, we might not really know what the data is, let alone, uh, you know, have the tools to fix that data, if that makes sense. Right. And then often, as the IT pro guy, I'm putting that hat on, we're the ones who generally have to admit, no, that data really, truly is lost. (laughs) It ain't coming back. 
Yeah, before you say that, you should print out your resume with the company's printers, at least. <laughs> um, I'll be going now. Thanks. That's great. a very career-limiting move. Um, yeah. And that goes back to the number one rule is information assurance. Uh, you know, you're, you're not only responsible for getting that data and returning, but you're responsible even if the data center burns to the ground. You know, odds are the business owner expects that data to be recoverable. Somewhere. Um, and also security falls into information assurance. Not only do we have to take that data and return it, we also have to only take data from people who are authorized to give us data and only return that information to the people who are authorized to receive that information. Um, in a lot of ways, you're better off losing data than having it compromised. Uh, if you lose the data, yeah, the data is lost, but it can be even more damaging to have your data compromised and you know, have someone just go in and change the data because that's extremely hard you know, to figure out, um, you know, and if, if you could get in and change, uh, you know, sales entries, um, and, and, you know, change the, the n- numbers for the business, that can be more damaging than just losing the data itself. Right. Yeah. I guess it depends on the company. It depends on the data. Uh, right. Uh, more than the, the company. All right, so we know we need to protect the data. So what, what's next? What do we got to do to do that? The, the, second, um, the second theory you need to, to kind of embrace is learn the value of being OCD. So ah. OCD is <laughs> obsessive compulsive disorder. Richard's um, got a great line here. Go for it, man. <laughs> what? I've learned to harness my OCD for the forces of good? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the best IT pros are a little bit OCD. Um, a little bit? Ridiculous. Well, prefer- well, hopefully not disabilitatingly OCD. Um, you know, t- Twitter is a good way to kind of become a functional member of society because you have to learn not to be OCD. You know, you have to learn that it's okay not to read every single tweet. But um, But when it comes to managing infrastructure, you need to be OCD. And so some of the ways I think it's especially important is, you know, I think naming conventions matter a lot, and OCD manifests itself here a lot. Um, so if you name all your servers consistently, um, you're going to make your life, not only are you going to make your life a lot easier, when there's problems, you're going to be able to troubleshoot more effectively. Um, um, you know, I'm a big fan of not using, you know, what I call a vanity server name. So I would rather name something, for example, you know, something like MS SQL 01 versus calling it Pluto. You know, if you name your servers, you know, Pluto or, or um, you know, Star Trek characters, whatever the case may Grateful be. Grateful Dead songs. Um, you know. Right. Who would do, do that? that? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, so when that <laughs> happens and you get this call and it says, hey, there's a problem with Pluto, you got to stop and think, you know, what, what does Pluto do? Whereas if someone calls you and says, hey, there's a problem with, SQL 01, you know, you, you immediately know what that server does. Uh, and when you're getting a phone call at 3 a.m., it, it's nice to not have to think nearly as much as, as uh, normal. Um, but I think this is also true, you know, of account names, service account names, even all the way to things like the logical names of NICs. The less you have to stop and think about, you know, what is this thing going to be called, the better off you are. It's the same for developers when they name their methods or their classes. You know, if you're consistent about the way you name things, um, the easier it is to work with those classes. Um, you know, in .NET, everything has the .2 string. 
could you imagine if if on different types of objects it was to string or it was like convert to string or it just kept changing slightly, you know, .NET would be a lot harder to work with. And the same thing is true with your infrastructure. So naming conventions around servers, around account names. Is there Are there other key naming conventions? Well, really anything. I mean, the examples I pointed out were server names, account names, logical names of Nix. I think IIS site names is another big one that developers often have direct interaction with. Um, I was just working with a client who had a problem with their SharePoint infrastructure. Um, and they had two front-end SharePoint servers. Um, and in SharePoint, there's four or five different IIS sites. You know, there's one for SharePoint itself, and then there's one for the My Sites functionality, and there's one for the search, and one for the central administration. And between those two front-end servers, there was no, you know, the, the, the IIS site names didn't match. And so we had to sit there and kind of try to map them together and figure out, you know, when we go to SharePoint itself, like, what site is that? Um, and it just made it really hard to troubleshoot. It probably doubled the amount of time of troubleshooting it took um, as if the site names were being not only consistent across the boxes, but named something logical. You know, I really like to name the IIS sites, you know, the name of the, the URL that the users would be going to. Um, just creates, you know, easy troubleshooting scenario. I think that the other element of OCD that really is prevalent in IT folks is the security part, the password complexities and, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. OCD helps a lot with security, a lot, a lot with security. The more consistent you are about the way you do things, the less you have to think about it and the less, the easier it is to make changes. So even if you decide, okay, we're doing this one thing and we're doing it consistently across all our servers, but we need to tweak this because, you know, we're more enlightened now. We've determined that this is slightly insecure. If right. everything's consistent, it's easy to go across your infrastructure and make those changes as opposed to having to go from box to box and figure out, okay, how is this one configured and, and does it need to be changed or not? Um, you know, one of the things is IT pros are being asked to do more and more every single year. You know, if you look at what we were asked to do 10 years ago and, and what we're asked to do today, the number of servers or the number of services we have to manage is, is growing per admin. At the same time, the level of automation available for those things has gone way up too. I mean, the care and feeding of SQL Server is dramatically lower. The level of automation is, has gone up, and automation works a lot better when things are consistent. I agree, yeah. I mean, you, developers know that. It's a lot easier to get data that's that's well-formed as opposed to just random data that they have to kind of figure out how to work with. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whom this show would not exist. No doubt, you bump into testing tasks now and then in your work. And we can bet writing functional tests is not your favorite thing. It's difficult. It takes ages and the results could be dubious. Well, get ready to start liking it thanks to Telerik. With the just-launched Web AII testing framework, Building web automation tests is a breeze. Enjoy code-based automation of advanced ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight apps. Write a single test and have it executed against multiple browsers at once. Benefit from rich API link support, integration with Visual Studio unit testing, NUnit, XUnit, and MBUnit, not to mention the free wrappers for Telerik RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight that ship with Telerik's new testing tool. 
Surely one of its best features, Web AII Testing Framework, which is developed by Art of Test, is absolutely free. If you're already hooked on Web AII Testing Framework, you can start using it right away. Go to Telerik.com for more info, and hey, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Uh, I think one of the areas where where uh, rookie or small sites really struggle is with Active Directory. Yeah, um, that's a big animal. That's a big can of worms you just opened. <laughs> yeah, they're all over well, the floor now. <laughs> uh, how do you how do you feel about this, Steve? That what can should a small shop avoid AD and just stick with workgroup networking as long as possible? I don't feel that way, but I am slightly biased because Active Directory is my specialty. You know that is. Oh, okay. Probably the technology I know more than anything else. Um, I think Active Directory helps small shops a lot. Once you get it set up, um, you know you can use it to to really automate a lot of stuff. In fact, one of the items on on my little cheat sheet here is you know group policy in Active Directory helps a lot with OCD. Um, you know you can use group policy to to manage the local admin groups of all your servers, and so that's you know consistent consistently done across you know, your infrastructure and stuff like that. I think if you don't have anyone on staff that is really comfortable with AD, you know, find an IT consultant you trust and bring him in for three or four hours. And he can get you set up and going and kind of give you, you know, give your team a, a tutorial on, on how to keep things moving along, with, you know. And I think in the long term, you're going to save a lot of money from doing that. Well, and it's an interesting point, the idea that a lot of this is sort of, set and forget kind of infrastructure once you get it built right it doesn't take much to keep it running yeah that that's especially you know that's been a growing trend in the last 10 years is generally speaking once you get it working right you can you know it will kind of manage itself as long as you know you don't muck with it too much um the important part is to know when that's not the case um and then you know you constantly have to be reevaluating you know the way that we did things 5 years ago um, is not necessarily a best practice. You know, it, it, you need to move forward a little bit as time goes on. But I think it sounds it sounds to me like it's pretty good advice that if you are the guy who's been stuck with this job now and you haven't done it before, it's well worth securing some cash to get in, uh, a consultant in for a little while at least to get some fundamentals set up right so you're not going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, I, I would say most of my clients, and I think this is true of any good IT consultant, you know, your clients will find that what they're paying you pays for itself over right. time. You know, if you're having one of your developers manage the infrastructure, what takes him 10 hours, we can do at least, you know, a minimum of five. Um, and so, you know, you, you're losing 10 hours of development work as opposed to paying us to do five hours of IT work. Um, you know, presumably you're, you're in the business to do development, not to do. IT stuff. So generally speaking, it really is a no-brainer from a, a cost-benefit perspective. The trick of a good consultant is being able to articulate that in numbers. Yeah, and getting those things done quickly and painlessly. Yeah. All right, let's keep moving on. What's next? Conformity is good. And so by this, I mean, um, you know, IT, um, you know, technology in general, we can kind of make it do whatever we want. But 
the technology is designed to do certain things, and there's certain limitations of what it can do, um, you know, in 2009. Um, a good example of this is I had a client that had an email system, and they had implemented their own custom authentication system. And every time a patch would come out from the vendor, it would often break the, the authentication system. They'd have to kind of tweak things. Um, every time they called the vendor for support, you know, they always had that, well, you're doing this thing that no one else does right? Uh, thing hanging over their head. You know, they couldn't turn to, you know, user group forums or, um, and, you know, different resources on the Internet because they were just in this different boat than everyone else. Generally speaking, when you're designing IT infrastructure, um, if you're kind of doing something, if, you, if you're saying to yourself, wow, we're doing something that no one else is doing, you may want to stop and reevaluate what you're doing and if that's the best idea. Just that idea that recognize that that is bad. Right. If no one else is doing it, there's probably a reason no one else <laughs> has done it. Um, which is sometimes hard for our egos to take. Um, but, hey, you know, it's not about what we want to do. It's about what's best for the business. Yep. And really, it's what's best for you because the worst, you know, you're just making a, a, you're making a system for yourself that's going to be hard to manage. And that's the last thing you want. Well, from a software development perspective, it's fun to innovate. Right. You know, I, exactly. I was going to make that comment, but I couldn't figure out how to say it without insulting the entire no, audience. No, no, no. It's... I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah, we're familiar with that issue. But generally speaking, uh, you know, when you're doing software development, there are times when it, you know, it's cool to innovate. But if you're trying to meet the needs of the business, a lot of the times it makes sense to just kind of stick with the status quo as much as we hate to say that, you know, from the developer side of things. Um, you know, using things that are just built in tends to be better than rolling your own system if, if you can avoid it. Well, and so if you're going to roll your own, go into it with great trepidation. Right. Do it as a last resort. You've tried everything else, and it seems to be the only way. Yeah. You know, I'm a big proponent of IT needs to fit the needs of the business, not vice versa. Right. But at the same time, the business has to realize what is IT capable of and what is it going to cost me to do exactly what I want You know, my business to have. And it's all a cost-benefit ratio. You know, you have to weigh the cost of doing whatever the business wants against the cost of implementing that. And, and, you know, ultimately, those are decisions the business owners need to make, but it's our job as IT pros to educate the business owners on the cost-benefit of these different decisions that are being made. I was recently talking to a fellow who was part of an SAP implementation for a mid-sized business. They had more money than cents, obviously. And he said, after two years of customizing SAP, it suddenly hit me, gee, if we changed our business practices to match the way SAP wants to work, we would have saved a lot of money and gone faster. Yeah. And and oftentimes those changes in business practices are not revolutionary. They're, yeah, you they're know, pretty minor. There's saying, an extra PO. Right or, now you make widgets and we want you to shift to making this other type of widget. We're just saying, you know, allow three days to process an order, you know, a, a, a PO as opposed to wanting to do it in real time. And you might save yourself $100,000 in implementation of this real-time system and, and, and ultimately end up with the same results. Um, you know, we're just talking about little shifts in, in how business runs. And oftentimes, the way business runs, if it's not geared towards how technology can help them, 
you know, the business needs to let technology help them as opposed to trying to make the technology continue what they're currently doing without technology. Right. All right. Next. 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 Less, less is more. Um, I think this is especially true. Uh, two, big, two big examples. The first one, firewall rules. Um, I've seen firewalls that have extremely complicated rules in them where they try to micromanage every little connection that happens. What happens when you get to this point where you can't fit all the firewall rules in your own mind? You start making massive mistakes, mistakes that can be quite costly. Um, and so try to simplify your firewall rules as much as possible. And you still want to be secure in the way you do it, but do it in a way where you can manage it and you don't have to you know, spend hours making every little change. Just deny everybody. That's a that's a good way of being secure. <laughs> <laughs> it's very simple. Close the door and don't open it. <laughs> another another area where less is more makes a lot of sense is is and what we install on the server. Um, IIS is a really good example of this. In Windows 2000, IIS was in, not only was it installed by default, but all the components of IIS were installed and enabled. Right. Um, and when Code Red hit, you know there were hundreds of ser- thousands of servers like hundreds of thousands of servers that got hit by Code Red that weren't even web servers. But the default installation of Windows 2000 included IIS. Starting in Windows 2003, um, they, they went by, with a secure by default where you install Windows Server 2003, you don't have IIS. And even if you do install IIS, there's m- multiple components underneath that. You know, Even to the point of, do you want to allow, you know, do you want to install the module that does server-side includes? And then even once you install it, you have to go enable those specific modules. Right. Um, the less you have installed, the less there is to exploit, and the less there is to patch. Um, you know, if if there was a vulnerability in the server-side include module that comes out tomorrow, but you don't even have it installed, you don't even have to be worried about that exploit. And you don't need to know. Right. And IIS 7 takes us to an even further extreme where it's even more componentized. And Windows Server 2008 Core is even a further example of this where, you know, they don't even install a GUI. All you have is the command prompt. You know, all those Internet Explorer bugs that you have to patch on a monthly basis, that's all, you know, you don't have to worry about that anymore. just goes away. Exactly. Another area where less is more makes a lot of sense is, is avoid those operating system tweaks. Um, you know, I'm talking about all those little tweaks where, you you know, someone says, oh, you'll tweak out 2% more performance if you do this little tweak. And while, you know, I realize that sometimes those tweaks are necessary to, you know, squeak out that last bit of performance because, the you know, your server just requires it. You know, the less you do that, the better. Um, and when you do do it, do it consistently across your environment. You know, don't do it on this set of web servers, but not on this set. You, know, you just want to Less is more also applies to that concept of the less we have to think about, the better off we are. Right. Less changes that you own, default configuration wherever possible. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. You know, Microsoft tests their patches against, you know, the the standard installation with, you know, this set of software that's, you know, it's not published. If you're doing all this this really crazy stuff, there's, you know, there's no guarantee that their patch testing is going to cover those scenarios. And so you become more responsible for patching. And you have to do the testing yourself. Right. Um, 
which segues to security. Um, you know, my next point is no security. And one of those is, you know, patch your boxes. Patching is really important. And I feel like an unpatched box is more vulnerable than the patching process itself, especially if, if you, you know, you're doing a very standard infrastructure layout. And so when you say no scenario, you mean no security, you mean K-N-O-W, not N-O. Exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. Normally, there, there's a slide on the screen that, that shows that. Right. Never, never had to think about audio only. I'm also very confused how you guys are recording my hand movements right now. Because um, that's half my gift as a speaker. But I trust you guys to pick it up somehow. Oh, it's there. Let's get translated uh, accordingly. Encoded. When the transcript comes out, I'll come in and and add little hand. Add hand the gestures. gestures. Yeah. It's the gesture AI. Yeah. Jumped up and down here. <laughs> so back on the security stuff, um, you know, patching is super, super important. Uh, least user access for your account. So what that means is the accounts that, you know, the service accounts that run your service, um, the admin accounts, even the user's access, you know, even the accounts that the user's um, access the system with, you know, give those accounts as little access as they need. Um, if you have a service that all it needs to do is read and write a file from a certain folder, there's no reason for that account to have local admin rights. You know, as soon as that account has local admin rights, you know, and your service has an exploit in it, you, you've just given that exploit admin rights to your server. Um, the less rights something has, the less damage it can do. Um, this includes your own account. Um, you know, the account that you use on a daily basis as a developer, you know, it does not need domain admin rights. Um, you know, and, and really the less rights you have, the less stuff can be blamed on you. Um, right. When I go into client sites, sometimes they just try to give me a domain admin account as soon as I show up. And I don't want it because I might be working on this little, you know, web server problem over here in the corner and their whole forest goes down. You know, their Active Directory forest has a problem. If I didn't even have the rights to make those changes, they can't, you know, no one can point the finger at me. And the same is true, you know, in your day-to-day job. I, I often say to developers, you don't want an administrator account. That just means it could be right. your fault. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. You remember when Microsoft was giving access to the Windows source code for MVPs, if the MVPs wanted to access it? And we were all sort of like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I want to check that out. I'm like, I don't. There's no way I'm going to check that out. I don't yeah. want to know. Yeah, every now and then, you know, you get a little nugget of, of you know, information that's under an NDA that you shouldn't have. And it's like, I don't want to know that, you know. Now that I know that, I'm responsible. You know, if I, if I accidentally let it slip, you know, I, I, I'm going to at, at the very least hurt a friendship, you know. I'm yeah. not a big fan of that. Same concept. Absolutely. Use host firewalls. Um, you know, put the firewall that comes on the server, enable it. You know, as the server admin, you know better than anyone else what, sh- you know, what services should be exposed on that box. Um, not only, you know, do you, are you protecting the box at its endpoint, but you're also, you know, you're protecting it from the other servers on the same side of the firewall as you. You know, just... You know, if I have an infrastructure with, 
with some web servers and some file servers, just because I manage both of them doesn't mean I necessarily want them talking to each other. Um, you know, if one of them gets compromised, it's going to go over and compromise the other one if it has the access to do that. So use your host firewall and, and limit what is exposed to the network. Um, and then lastly, use smart passwords. Um, and by smart password, you know, passphrases are even better, meaning, um, you know, I like pepperoni pizza is a great password. Other than that's the example that everyone always uses. But, you know, a 20, 30, 40 character password like that, it's just a sentence, um, is statistically speaking, it's more, it's more secure than an eight character password that uses, you know, every possible, um, key on the keyboard, you know, all these random characters. Well, I, uh, what about dictionary attacks though? I thought a, a dictionary attack by definition was something that went through the dictionary and tried every word and then every combination of word, not every combination of words, but. Sure. I guess when it's sure. one word, that's a real word with, you know, O for zero for O and one for I, that's when you get into trouble, huh? Even, even if you're just using, even if you're just typing a sentence, like you would type in an email, um, you know, if you, if you've got 20, 30, 40 characters in there, it's, it's actually harder, mathematically speaking, to brute force that password than an eight character password using upper, lower numbers and special characters. Um, you know, there's still a lot of words out there in the dictionary. And for good effect, just throw in, you know, throw in the name of your kid that is an unusual name or, or whatever the case may be. I've always liked having a proper noun in a password as well, but I like passphrases because they're human easy and machine hard. Mm. Exactly. Uh, that's the real advantage. One of the big advantages is they're really, really easy to remember. You know, I when when they're easy to remember, it's a lot easier to um, have different passwords for different things as opposed to remembering this totally random stuff that doesn't have any logical sense. Well, yeah, that that 32-character random password that that guy was issuing was easy for everybody to remember. They wrote it down and stuck it to the machine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but at the very least, don't use passwords like password. You know, <laughs> or you'll end up like You'll end up like Twitter did last week with, you know, your financial information on TechCrunch. Nice. Yeah. Hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. You know, we talked about this before, but OCD helps a lot when it comes to security. The more consistent you are, the better off you're going to be. And just remember, security is all about risk management. You know, you cannot be 100% secure. You have to balance, you know, how secure do you need to be against, you know, the needs of the business and the costs associated with, with being as secure as possible. Ultimately, these are decisions that the business owner has to make. It's just your job to educate them correctly on those, on those risks and costs. All right. Shall we move past security? One last thing, test your security. And I don't mean, I mean, it's really nice to do those, what we call penetration tests, where you hire an outside company to try to break into your system. 
Um, that's really nice, but but they're expensive. Just log in as a user, or while at home, just try to poke around at your systems and see what you can get access to, you know, without any of your special access. And you know, just because you feel like you're setting something correctly, doesn't mean you actually are. Moving on, the next one: no networking. Um, and we touched on this before, um, but basically, just know how name resolution works. Know how, how know how webserver.com gets turned into an IP address, so that when it's not working, you can kind of troubleshoot it. Um, even if you can't resolve the issue, at least be able to, you know, talk to a networking guy, you know, understanding what he's saying. Um, know how firewalls and ports works. You know, if if you can't get to your web server, just see if you can hit port 80. You can use that with the telnet command. Just do a telnet space, name of the server you're trying to hit, space 80 for the port. Um, and you'll see, you know, can I even just connect to this port? It doesn't mean the web server is serving up pages correctly. It, you know, it doesn't mean that your code behind is working correctly. It just means that I can connect to that port. Something on that machine is listening on port 80. And that, that's a huge troubleshooting step to overcome. If you don't know the specific port, you can use a tool like Nmap that will scan all the ports on your system and give you a list of what is available. Um, and lastly, know how packet tracing works. So using a tool like Wireshark, um, which is a free open source tool, uh, you can watch all the packets going across your network card and you can see specifically what's causing um, the problem. I had a client that had a third-party app and uh, they migrated that, that app from one system to another. Um, and everything was working just fine. And then a couple weeks go by and they shut down the old server. And then all of a sudden, their clients, when they would launch that application, would take two or three minutes to, to load up until it would finally load and then work, work correctly. And they spent a good week kind of banging their heads against the wall trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. And these are, these were IT pros that were doing this. Uh, and after about a week, they called me in. Um, and I said, well, what does the packet trace show? And they hadn't done one. So we did a packet trace real quick. It took about five minutes. And you look at the trace, and about the fifth packet down it showed, it was trying to hit the old server name. Um, and it would sit there for 180 seconds until it would time out. And then finally the application would load. So, you know, the, a packet trace has, has a, a gold mine of information in, inside of it um, and can quickly lead you to what your problem is. Cool. Um, it's a difficult concept. I mean, it's a huge concept to cover in you know three or four minutes. Um, I'm go- I'll have a screencast of my talk of networking for developers up that you can find on my website. Um, so if you want to dive a little deeper on that subject, you know, you-, you can go check that out. Great. The next one that's a huge subject uh, is no performance analysis. Um, again, massive subject. There's no way we can cover it in three or four minutes. Um, if you want to dive deeper on it, there's two great resources online. One of them is a Technic article. Help me out, Richard. His name's Shane Creamer. Creamer, yeah. You Kramer, did? yeah. Creamer. He has a, he has a Technet article. Um, it's the 25 performance monitor counters that you want to know. Um, and you can find that at shrinkster.com slash 17RL. And then the other one is the Run As Radio episode that you guys did with them. Um, and that's at shrinkster.com slash 17RM. And so if you want to dive deeper on performance analysis, um, you know, that's, those are two great resources to start with. But just a quick overview of 
of you know what you need to know about performance analysis. The first one is look at your peaks, not your averages. Um, you know, if you're looking at CPU performance and you look at it over the course of an hour, you know, the average CPU over the course of an hour, it might say it was at 30%. But that's not going to tell you that it was pegged at 100% for five minutes somewhere in there. So you want to make sure you, you look at your peaks. Performance all comes down to a bottleneck. Although, yeah, having CPU percentage all the way up doesn't worry me that much. It's CPU queuing that really worries me. Yeah, so there's what's the difference? There's two big counters to look at in CPUs. One is the percent of processor time, and if that's creeping above 85%, you're probably looking at a CPU bottleneck. And then the other one is the processor queue length. Um, and basically what that means is how many processes are there waiting for the CPU to do something. And if that number creeps above two times your number of cores, you're probably looking at a performance bottleneck. What's the difference between those two performance counters? The point there being that processors tend to go to 100%. That's what right. they're built to do. It's a question of how long they stay there. I'm not too worried right. when I see it hit 100%. It's just that if it sits there for five minutes, that's bad. My queue links really show you there's work that's not being performed because there's not enough processor resources available. Exactly. And if your percent processor time is really high, then faster CPUs will help you out. Whereas yeah. if your processor queue length gets really high, then more cores will help you out. Hopefully. There are definitely apps out well, there, those darn developers. Yeah. <laughs> like I like I said, this is a very shallow look at performance analysis. It, sure. It's definitely the 80-20 rule in effect here. So you, you would definitely have to dive deeper to really understand what's going on there. The other place to look for a memory or a, a performance bottleneck is your memory. And if your memory, if your available megabytes drops below 10% of your total memory, you know, you should start getting concerned. And the reason we look at the percentage of available memory as opposed to total memory available is if, let's say I have a SQL server with 64 gigs of RAM. Right. And, and I only have 4 gigs of RAM left. When that backup process kicks off, we're quickly going to use up the rest of the memory. Um, you know, because so much of it is being consumed, consumed by, you know, a, a huge database, apparently. So you want to look at your, the percent of memory left available. The next big one is disk. And the things to look at on your disk subsystem is your current disk queue length. If that's greater than two times your number of spindles, um, you're looking at a problem. And if your percent idle time is less than 20%. So if your disks are working more than 80% of the time, you're probably looking at a disk bottleneck. RAID generally messes with these numbers. A RAID array tends to stay busy because it's always re you know, reallocating itself. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, this is, a very high-level view of performance analysis. Yeah. So you're right. If you're, you know, just because you see these numbers doesn't, you know, you need to dive a little bit deeper to truly understand what's going on before right. you have come to a, a complete conclusion. The last thing to look at is the network card. If your output queue length is above two, that basically means there's more than two items waiting to go out in the network. Um, you're probably looking at a, a network bottleneck. Um, but on modern networks, those are pretty rare. So look at the other three first. It's really hard to saturate a gigabit network. Yeah, really, really hard. Yeah, you know, I sit in a lot of meetings where they where they start worrying about you know about you know do we need to upgrade to ten gig or do we need to put in two one gig cards? And I just point out you're going to have to have a really big machine behind that network card to be able to saturate it. 
There's very few NICs that could physically saturate it. Just because you have a gigabit NIC doesn't mean it can move a gig of data. You guys should try uh, recording uh, 12 tracks to a NAS at the same time. (laughs) And then tell me whether you can saturate a gigabit network. Yeah, well, you're kind of an oddball, Carl. I've always been an oddball. (laughs) I'm okay with that. But you also have to wonder, did you saturate the network or did you saturate the card? Because most cards don't actually have the horsepower to fill up the pipe. True. They, they run out of buffer space, so they run out of interrupts before they run out of bandwidth. It's a good yeah. question. I mean, one gig, one gig networks came, became commonplace, you know, in the early part of this decade. And while the 10 gig equipment is available, no one's moving to it. No. You know, unless you're like a telecom, for example. Yeah. But, you know, just, it's just not an issue right now. Um, and really, Nine times out of ten, your performance bottleneck is going to be your disk. Oh, well, it's the slowest part of the machine. Yeah, 99% of the apps out there are sitting around waiting for disk. Yeah. You know, having a log of your performance over time is extremely useful. You know, it's nice to say, hey, there's a performance problem today. What did it look like a month ago? What did it look like six months ago? What did it look like before we upgraded to that new version? Right. Um, that can quickly help you determine what, what happened. You know, what, what's causing our performance bottlenecks all of them. All right. Next item, understand disaster recovery. Um, you know, the disaster recovery means, you know, if I lose data, how do I get it back? Um, a lot of less experienced IT pros want to go with the notion of we'll just back everything up. And that just doesn't work because we have things like databases. We have things like locked files. We have to understand our application. We have to understand our servers. We have to understand how this data is being written and the proper ways to back it up. You know, if you just stuck a, uh, if you just point a flat file backup at a SQL server, you'll get the OS and you'll get the installation of SQL, but you're not going to get any of your data off of it. Right. Um, so you need to do that analysis on all of your machines and you need to do it before the problem happens. Um, you know, the number of the number of scenarios I've come into where where a disaster has happened and now they want to figure out if those backups they were taking were any good, um, it's it's scary. Whenever we think about disaster recovery, we always want to think in the terms of how do I restore the data, not how do I backing up the data is all well and good, but unless you can restore it, those backups are just for ticks and giggles. Yeah, that's uh, another great Paul Randall line. We don't have a backup strategy. We have a restore strategy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Everything else is Um, dictated from there. Especially in databases, the consequences of going to a 24-hour backup are pretty dramatic. You know, you've lost a day's worth of data then. Right. Yep. And, And that's a really good example of where you need to understand how you know, SQL logging works and how you can use that to your advantage. You know, if, if you just treat it just like any other system, you're losing out on a lot. But I think part of this is having that conversation with the business saying, they, this all comes down to that conversation with the business owner saying, how much data can we afford to lose? How recoverable is that data? Is there, is it all on paper? We could just re-enter it? Right, exactly. And then the, this, the other side of that is downtime. How long can we afford to be down? Yeah, you have to understand the requirements of your business. Um, and there's two requirements they're going to have. They're going to have the recovery point objective, which means how much data can you lose? You know, is it okay to lose a day's worth of data or not? Um, right. 
you know, that's, that's, it depends on the data. And then the other one is your recovery time objective. So how long can your data be inaccessible? Some data, they might not want to lose a single piece of data, but they're okay if it takes, you know, 48 hours to restore it maybe. While as other data, they might want, they don't care how much data they lose. They just want it available immediately. Um, and it just depends on your data and what matters to them. Mm-hmm. You, you also need to understand the difference between disaster recovery and high availability. Um, having a SQL cluster is not disaster recovery. That is merely high availability. You know, if you corrupt your data, you know, you're, you're still hosed. You, you have to go back to a disaster recovery standpoint. Um, all a SQL cluster does, for example, is keep you up. Yeah, so I mean, the cluster allows you to have corrupted data across multiple servers rather than actually protecting you from corrupted data. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, or, you know, worst case scenario, that data center burns down. It's taken out your entire cluster. Right. I came to work one day and there was a smoking hole in the ground where the office used to be. Right. People always think that's some extreme example of, uh, you know, a, a data center being lost. Three weeks ago, I was going to a client's site because they literally had a, a pipe burst above the data center, a water pipe from a bathroom. And uh, it came down on two racks of servers, and it actually completely destroyed one. Right. If that pipe would have burst 30 feet to the left, it would have been over the sand. And uh, they would probably still be trying to recover some of that. It would have taken, that would have been everybody. Yeah. I mean, cause, especially because it's a heavy VM environment. And all their VMs are living on, on virtual or are running on the sand. You yeah. Know? So that sand goes out. It's it's eighty percent of their infrastructure is gone. Yeah. And if you've got it all backed, I love the idea of oh, don't worry, we had an offsite backup. I have this tape. I don't know the drive <laughs> model that it came from because that was lost in the fire. But I have this tape. <laughs> yeah, and that's another good point that you know the data has to get offsite. Um, you know the tape sitting on top of the server is not good enough. Um, there's, I, I actually heard a story of a, a disgruntled employee came back to the office with a baseball bat and went, went at it in the server room, you know, took out the server and the tape that was sitting right on top of it. <laughs> These are kind of grim scenarios to be talking about, but, you know, the business owner wants you, is going to want you to, you know, deal with these types of scenarios. Well, we had, I had a company who had a fire and they had an offsite tape so that all they had left was a stack of tapes, but they didn't even know the model of the drive. And when we finally figured out what drive it was, oh man, it was like a six week lead time to get the drive, much less everything yeah. else. Like it's just physically the amount of downtime you're incurring to try and get back there. Yeah. Next one, understand high availability. Um, you know, understand where high availability makes sense and understand the different types. Um, the, the concept you have to keep in mind is the data either lives in one place or the data is not converged. Um, so, for example, uh, some applications handle the high availability. Active Directory is a good example of this, where it replicates its data between the different domain controllers. But that data is rarely converged, meaning different domain controllers have different sets of data. And so, in this case, the application handles that on your behalf for you. Um, but if you're using something like SQL mirroring, your application has to be somewhat aware of that scenario of, you know, there's going to be different sets of data in different places, possibly. Um, another high availability solution is load balancing. So this makes a lot of sense where you're going to duplicate the data and it's fairly static. A good example of that is a web server where, you know, your copy of the website is on 
is on every web server in that farm, and the requests come in, and it just distributes them, distributes those requests out appropriately. Terminal servers is another good example of where, you know, your users come in and they just get distributed to a terminal server, um, and they work in that terminal server. And if that terminal server fails, they're gonna have to log back in. But they can just log back in and get back to work on a different server. Right. Exactly. And you know, all your data is being hosted off the terminal server. You know, on a file server, for example. Right. Um, and then lastly, you, you have the clustering scenario, the active-passive clustering. So SQL servers and file servers is where that comes into play, where you have one set of the data and you have multiple um, servers you know, standing by ready to serve up that data. Um, and sometimes no high availability makes sense. Um, you know, it's all about risk management again. It's, you know, the cost of your high availability has to be lower than the, the cost of your saved downtime. Yeah, I, I like to rank my high availability solutions in, into cold, warm, and hot. Hot being clustered where the computer actually, the, the system actually switches to a new server automatically and lets you know when it's happened, which is right. actually a very freaky moment when that happens. <laughs> and cold being, uh, if that fails, I have a tape and I'll order a new server from Dell and a few weeks from now it'll arrive, we'll plug the tape in and we'll be back. But the warm right. is the interesting one. I, I'm surprised how few people understand log shipping. Just being able to say, hey, well, here's a not-so-busy server. We've got another license to SQL server running on it, and I'm just shipping the data to it in 15-minute intervals yeah. so that should the main machine fail, I have to manually switch us, but our data is no more than 15 minutes behind. Yeah. And, and if it's like a, if that database is for a website, you know, it's pretty easy to switch the clients over. Yeah. The clients are just a few web servers. Yep. You know, if, if you've got 10,000 clients hitting that web server, you know, it's some line of business app, or I'm sorry, that, that um, database server, you know, then you're talking about a much more difficult scenario to, to cut over unless right. the application can handle that seamlessly. That's a far less expensive solution that gives you right. 80% of what you really wanted, if not more. And it's a lot easier to manage. One of the things, I mean, people talk about clustering and how expensive it is because, you know, you have to have enterprise licenses of Windows. Windows. You have to have um, hardware that's, that's supported in a cluster. You have to have, um, you have to have twice as much hardware as you would normally have. You have to have a SAN that can manage, you know, can handle all of this. But you also, cluster, clustering is hard. You know, you need a, you need a skilled IT guy to manage a cluster. Otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna lose more in downtime. You know, it's gonna cost you more downtime than it saves you. Yeah, I agree. That's not a trivial piece of gear to run. Don't don't go into it lightly. Right. And if you're just if you just want clustering so that once a month when you patch the box, you you avoid ten minutes of downtime. You know, I, I would be hard pressed to find a business scenario where ten minutes of down planned downtime once a month, you know, warrants a cluster. Right. Um, you know, especially 10 minutes in the middle of the night. Sure, there are sites that require, you know, Amazon.com. You know, in that 10 minutes, they would lose more money than it's worth. But, uh, you know, most applications do not require, you know, five nines of uptime. Sure. And, and this transitions to my next point is you need to understand the value of downtime. Um, you need to do a business analysis of when this service is down, how much money is that costing, the, you know, the company? Does a developer um, really need to know that? No. That's something in, well, somewhat. 
because the developer needs to be aware of the high availability solution in place. You know, a developer can't write an application uh, not knowing that it's going to go on a cluster, and then it just does. They have to be somewhat aware of that scenario. But the IT pro, the IT pro does, um, meaning also the developer that fills the role of the IT pro does. But it's interesting truth that you your software has to tolerate a cluster failover for it to be seamless. It's, exactly. It, it's not transparent to the app when a failover happens. Yeah. And, and this is a scenario where me being a developer makes me a better IT pro. Because there's applications where that are talking to a SQL server, and when that SQL server fails from one node to another, the application just dies. And having some development background, I realize it's because that's, you know, their SQL connection broke in the application, and it's not reopening that connection. Right. And it, it's just sitting there hung. Steve, uh, as I sit and, and listen to this um, conversation, I'm I'm thinking that maybe we ought to have you back to to do a show focused on um, networking. You know, I was thinking that um, I would have to think about how easy that would be to do just audibly. Yeah, right. Um, I, I was thinking a screencast would be. Um, I can't remember what they're called. The .NET Rocks yeah. screencast. DNR TV. Right. DNR TV. That might be a better format for that. Okay. Um, Let's definitely consider it. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, Richard? Absolutely. Well, do you think it, you think it would work better as DNR TV? I think so, yes. Yeah. It's just a lot of visual. Right. Well, let's set it It'd up. It would be hard to convey. Yeah, anytime. Okay. I'm at your whim. Awesome. Well, that's about all the time we have today. Is there any last-minute thing you want to throw out there? Uh, two things. One is... Um, Feel free to go to my website, circtools.com. I'll have a screencast on networking, and you can find all my other presentations there. Um, you know, if you're looking for someone to come speak at your event, feel free to get in touch with me. Or if you need some ad- advice around IT Pro stuff, um, I'd love to talk to you. The second one is I'm starting a virtual users group um, for directory programmers. So if you're interested um, in, you know, in programming against things like Active Directory or LDAP, uh, go to uh, dirug.com. And that's uh, you know for directory programmers usergroup.com e-i-r-u-g um, and we're going to have our first meeting in August so hopefully um, you know, hopefully there'll be a bunch of people that are interested in that excellent Steve thanks a lot it's been informative thanks for having me it was a lot of fun alright we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a